all those bankers we just talked about would laugh at this conversation because they would say, what the fuck are you talking about? Bitcoin standard. Bitcoin is a joke. It's like buying Facebook stock in 15 years ago. You know, it's going up in price. so I'm going to make some money. What are you guys talking about with Bitcoin banking? Hello there. How are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I am using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And before we get into the interview today, I have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Compass Mining, and they are not just a sponsor. I am a customer of Compass Mining. I am mining with Compass Mining. Now, I've been doing this for about, wow, what is it, like four months now, and I've mined over half a Bitcoin with them. It's pretty cool. It's very cool, actually. I love the fact that I'm back mining, and I also love the way Compass does this. They've made mining accessible to everyone, and as a Bitcoiner, I'm happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. It was so easy to get onboarded, and now anyone can mine Bitcoin. You just pick your machines, choose your hosting facility, and they do all the rest of the work for you. Now, if you are interested in mining, or if you want to find out more, then please head over to compassmining.io. That is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G dot I-O. Next up, it is BCB Group. Now, BCB Group provide online business banking for companies in the Bitcoin industry, and yes, of course, I am a BCB customer too now. Now, they heard about the difficulty I was having finding a new bank, and they understand Bitcoin. So when they reached out to me and said, Pete, you should move your account over to BCB Group, I was like, sure. Sounds absolutely perfect for me. And I could not be happier with the service they have provided me. Now, BCB clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe. But they are now expanding globally. They also have this amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. Now listen, I know some of you have also had trouble with your banking. And if you are looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you want to become a BCB customer. Now if you want to find out, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Next up, it is Ledger, the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now listen, in Bitcoin, we have this saying, right? Not your keys, not your Bitcoin. So if you're a Bitcoin holder, it is your money and it's time for you to own it. And if you're not storing your Bitcoin on a hardware wallet, then you are trusting somebody else. I took control of my Bitcoin back in 2017 when I bought my first Ledger Nano S and I'm still using that same device today. Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. Now, if you would like to find out more or purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Next up, it is BlockFi. Now, BlockFi bridges the world of traditional finance and Bitcoin, empowering you for this future financial world. And for people in the US who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, then the BlockFi Rewards credit card provides the easiest way for you to earn Bitcoin. There are no fees to use this card, no annual fee, and no foreign transaction fees. And you can get 3.5% back in Bitcoin on all purchases in your first three months, and then 1.5% back forever after. And also, for every dollar you spend over 50000 annually, you can get 2% back in Bitcoin. Now, if you want to stack stats with BlockFi, then please head over to BlockFi.com for more information and to find out the terms and conditions. This is BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. 
Well, it's good to see you, man. It's nice yeah, to see you in person. Yeah. We're back to in-person interviews, which is great. Yeah. It's nice yeah. to have uh, more than just you and me in a table and two mics. Yeah, you guys are growing. We got a, we got a team. Here. We I got knew a team. you when. Huh? I knew you when. Danny might chip in as well. Danny asks questions sometimes now. Oh, wow. Only sometimes. Yeah. yeah. He asked better ones. He asked the best question in the last interview. We did which one with Gladstein. What, what was with Gladstein? Yeah, we were talking about the price of war, and he came in with this super intelligent, articulate question. I was like, fuck off, Danny. <laughs> <laughs> it's my show. Yeah. No, Danny, Danny will uh, chip in, and it's nice having him traveling with us. Uh, and always good to see him, man. Yeah, you too. Twice in a couple of weeks, which yeah, is great. That's right. It's good to be back here. Um, loads to catch up on. Yep. It's a really wild time at the moment. Feel like we bottomed out 33K. Price-wise, I think we've bottomed out for now. We'll see whether this is a channel or whether it's really like rocket fuel for the next kind of macro slash network effect driven leg up. I think it could be. doesn't really matter from a you know long-term time horizon perspective, but... We don't know yet, obviously. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> we all have our long-term thesis. We're all uh, hodling for years. Um, exactly. Can we talk a little bit about the institutional t- stuff we were talking about just before we started recording? Because um, it was a conversation we had recently in that last year we thought the institutions would come and we were told they were coming and maybe some did or they didn't. you got a different perspective on this. Yeah, I mean, we never yeah. really saw them. I mean, we, we, well... I think what people were seeing and calling institutional money was not really institutional money. It's what we would call high net worth money, which is in the U.S. maybe family offices or rich folks or some combination where I have a trust or, you know, again, family office, which has different legal structures. And billions certainly came in via that route. And and so you see that in a lot of the on-chain metrics that you talk about with others in terms of like strong hands. And um, I actually see those as stronger hands than the institutions that are likely to come in now for different reasons because those folks are likely to sell faster. Right. right. But they're not in yet. A little bit. But if you look at the the on-chain metrics and even what you're seeing on exchanges, our opinion is, and, and, and also in first-hand meetings that I've been doing with my team, the institutions are now the sharks in the moat circling the Bitcoin castle saying, okay, this looks... It's like something that our clients want now. And it takes its, it's, it manifests itself in different ways, right? Some are basically saying, don't want to touch Bitcoin or crypto, but I might be in, in, interested in these yield products that use Bitcoin as collateral. They call that crypto. You might not call it Bitcoin or crypto, right? But some are saying, hey, I want direct exposure to Bitcoin or Ethereum or even what the what's next stuff, right? And, and so we're seeing all of this now from the big banks that have either fund to funds that, that basically choose which products go in the portfolios that are accessible to their clients or maybe even in balance sheet money. And so we didn't see this in mass at all last year. And, and all of the large kind of allocation conferences that just happened in Miami, we saw it across the board. And so like literally from zero to one in the last year. And, and, and I, I don't know for sure, but in, anecdotally, I would say a lot of the pullback that happened from November until I guess last week, was it actually created more fuel for that, right? Because a lot of these folks are very savvy and they say, look, well, I don't want to get in for the first time at 68,000. I'd rather get in for the first time at 40,000. And some of them may be even a little disappointed because we really haven't had a lot of a lot more troughs within the, the run-up over the past 10 days, which I actually think could actually represent even more fuel for the next, the next run-up. So when people realize that there is no pullback to get in on, 
Um, and if you look at what's happening in futures, I know it's not a macro discussion, but you know we're um, we're looking at negative uh, funding rates right now while we're going up 20% off the lows. Last time that happened, Bitcoin doubled very, very quickly, right? And so from a, from a contrarian perspective, that's where you want to be. You want to see huge built up negative sentiment and pessimism while you're basically going up in price. It's just pure rocket fuel, right? When, when the, the, the futures markets basically are pricing in, you know, very high kind of uh, fees for taking the long side of a trade, that tends to put a wall or a ceiling on, on price. We have the opposite right now. We have a rising floor because of this pessimism that's built up over the last few weeks. And, and my point is, is that some of the savvy institutions, they don't really totally understand Bitcoin futures yet, but they see the pessimism versus the macros versus what's happening in the broader bond markets, which should all act as rocket fuel for risk on assets and going, this is interesting, right? So it's, it's, a, it's actually a really good time. In, at least in our opinion. And one of the things that's been quite clear over this last year is that Bitcoin seems to be very correlated to uh, <clears throat> economic news, market news, uh, the S&P. It's a correlation sometimes we don't really want because we like to see Bitcoin as this this lifeboat, this safe haven, safe haven asset. Why do you think that correlation is built up? I see it a little differently. I, okay. I think there's probably two or three things happening at the same time. And, and the pundits, like the CNBC types, they don't dig in enough to actually have a, a useful, <laughs> sorry, but they don't really dig in enough to have a useful explanation for what's really going on at a high level. They say, oh, the S&P went up, Bitcoin went up, the S&P went down, Bitcoin went down, they must be correlated. Well, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's what's happening, right? So I do think when there's extreme movements and extreme pessimism in stocks, it does affect Bitcoin right now. I don't think it has anything to do with this idea of Bitcoin being a hedge against inflation. I think the interest from the kind of maxis and, and for, the, for the purposes of Bitcoin discussion, I'll put myself in that camp, even though I actually believe in other technologies. What I would say is it's the promise that it's going to become that over time. Right. Not that it is that today. And I think more and more people independent of this kind of institutional investment thesis are recognizing that it's a network effect driven path towards becoming an inflation hedge. It is not an inflation hedge today. Anybody who watches the price, regardless of your perspective on shitcoins versus anything else, has to accept the fact that when you have these drawdowns on the way up for an exponentially growing asset, it is not, a, it is not an inflation hedge. No. It is the price we pay for being early, right, in what is effectively a network-driven, right, model, exponential growth model towards becoming that. And the network effects for Bitcoin are driven by this promise of inflation hedging and the network effects for Ethereum are driven by this promise of the world's computer, whether you believe it or not, that's what it is, okay? And neither is there yet. Both have the promise of that. I believe in that promise. And so I've put my money uh, in my, where my mouth is accordingly. And I think that is why we see these big kind of volatility swings, Not nothing to do with this macro thesis that, oh, there's a 0.7, and we show this too, but there's a 0.7 correlation between Bitcoin and the S&P 500. Well, at the extremes, it looks like that's true. But all of a sudden, when you're not in the extremes, when you're kind of on the way up or in the middle of the channel on the way down, those correlations don't seem to be true anymore. Well. Maybe it's maybe the point is we just made them up at the extremes <laughs> and it just kind of worked out. And so we went with it. And so my point is, is there's a much better explanation 
than that. So at the very extreme, when people are risk off, you know, I think people who aren't, uh, you know, investing via long-term conviction for where the network effects are going may reallocate, right? People who have conviction for those network effects I keep harping on are not going to reallocate, right? And so I do think that there's going to be a few different kind of dimensions to what happens to Bitcoin over time. The first is as the price goes up, the effects of, of leverage will actually come down over time because the price will simply, the value of the asset will simply be too large for any small number of investors to move the market via leverage. Whereas those of us who've been in for six or seven years know, especially when BitMEX first started, they could have a massive effect. I mean, they can literally just screw with you, move the markets and make sure everybody loses money except for them. Literally, that was what was happening in some cases. That, that is unlikely to happen three or four years out if, if Bitcoin really goes where I think it's going. So that's that's part one. Okay. I would say uh, part two is is that that'll be offset a little bit by some of these kind of institutions being willing to come in and out, right? Meaning they won't have the conviction of you or I in the short term. They may long term, but many of them are just going to basically look for buy and sell opportunities and optimizing tax strategies and other things that that cause them to come in and out. So you may see dips on the way, but it won't be the same as the volatility driven dips of excessive leverage in the system. I have to ask you, because you just said where I think Bitcoin's going, like where's Bitcoin going, Bill? I think that Bitcoin is going to a million from a dollar price perspective. Mm -hmm. But at that point, it really doesn't matter what Bitcoin is worth in dollar terms, because you're going to have a whole group of people who basically do their kind of economic thought basis in Bitcoin. We don't have that yet. Right. So I realize that you and I know some people who think that way, yep. but that's a round off error to zero on planet yep. Earth. But we are going to have a cadre of people on this planet who start to think in Bitcoin centric terms. Right. They're going to still spend dollars. They'll borrow in dollars in real time. You know, that's going to be a future big part of Abra's business is going to be enabling real time borrow of Bitcoin collateral to live because those people are thinking in Bitcoin terms. Now, today we have a lot of those people, but they're doing it for different reasons. They just don't want to sell Bitcoin and they know that it's going up in value and they're just all in. What's, what's the difference? The difference is, is that today they're still thinking about their net worth in dollar terms. Right. <laughs> right. And what I'm saying is I think that when Bitcoin hits a million, a lot of those people are no longer going to think about their net worth in dollar terms because it won't matter to them. Right. It's like saying, uh, you know, you, what are you telling me, uh, Neo, like when, that I can stop bullets? And Neo says, no, when the time comes, it won't matter, right? And, and I'm saying that when Bitcoin reaches a million dollars for a lot of people, that value won't matter because they're just going to think in Bitcoin-centric terms, but they're not today, right? I don't know if, that, if the nuance of that point is getting lost or not. But. Well, no, no, I, I understand. I think one of, the tricky, one of the trickiest things is the, when you look at something priced in Bitcoin, it isn't intuitive, you do the calculations. It's a bit like when you go on holiday and you go to Thailand and you it, get that. It, it, it's, a, it's a pointless exercise because you're dealing with an asset that's basically, um, you know, experiencing exponential growth because of network effects, not because of its, you know, value for being able to buy things. You know, and I, I'm a big believer in where we could go with the Lightning Network, but it's, it's just too early to be thinking in those terms for the average person. Um, and, and so I do think that we're going to get there. I think that you're going to basically see, like I said, a huge banking network emerge that enables people to spend in dollars, treat Bitcoin as their personal reserve currency, regardless of what governments tell them they should think about Bitcoin versus dollar or anything else, right? Because it's just going to make sense. It is going to become stable. 
You're not going to see 200% year dollar appreciation forever. Well, you, you could, I guess, if the Federal Reserve keeps doing what they're doing. But on the assumption that they don't act stupid forever, you know, I don't see why it would appreciate at 200% forever. But independent of that, if it becomes a stable store of value in 10 years, which is what I believe will happen, that a significant number, probably millions of people by then, will be looking at this as their personal reserve asset. In India, people pass gold on from generation to generation because it's a store of value of wealth. But the irony is they don't tap that wealth. They just pass it on. So when you think about it as somebody who doesn't do that, you're like, well, on the surface, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. Right? I understand passing out a home from generation to generation, which may look like wealth, but you're also living in the home. So what if that generational wealth was Bitcoin and you could access that wealth as you go? Right? You're borrowing against it. You're able to move it around in a way that is you know, ec for economic value as opposed to just here's, here's my gold jewelry. And yeah, maybe the value goes up over time, but so what? Right? Here we're talking about passing on generational wealth that people will access via dollar borrow, credit cards. You know, we, t we, we pride ourselves, people complain about their credit score, but we actually pride ourselves on having a great credit system in the US where a bank can quickly determine whether or not they should lend you money. Well, I would actually posit that having Bitcoin as collateral is a way, is a way better way to make those decisions for 8 billion people that don't have access to the kind of credit scoring system that we do. And I think that's the future of credit at retail on the planet meaning how much Bitcoin am I holding? Do I borrow and maybe in some stable coin in my country that I spend, right? So maybe put it in, in your audience's terms, I'm spending the shit coin and I'm holding the Bitcoin and that becomes a revolver for me. And I don't have to worry about somebody's credit worthiness because I'll tell you the way I look at it is, is I wanna to get to the point where, and we already have it, we, we will lend you at average 10% of the value of your Bitcoin today for free, forever. 10% of the value of Bitcoin for free forever. Right. So if you're holding, in other words, in English. So if you had a million, million dollars of Bitcoin. I will lend you $100,000 right now, zero interest, and I'll roll it over forever. So, but I have, to, I have to leave that with you. You do. Okay. But this is my point I'm making about the India example. If, if I'm willing to park my, my family jewelry, which is now Bitcoin, at a bank, crypto bank like Abra, I now have a personal revolver credit, but using a, a base asset that in theory is still mine. Right now, if I can't pay back the loan for whatever reason and I want to liquidate, they're not going to liquidate 100% of my Bitcoin. They're going to liquidate the 10% uh -huh. that I need to pay back the loan, right? Which is yeah. you know, what we would do today. And, and so that is a significantly better model for credit and banking if you believe in the Bitcoin standard as we do for the future, right? right. As opposed to arbitrarily deciding, well, I have no assets, but the bank arbitrarily decides that my credit worthiness is $40,000, which is my, you know, Black card credit line, whatever, whatever. I just made that up. So, yeah. But but now it's actually based on something tangible, something real. But no, hold on. So no interest, and it can roll over forever. So essentially, you can take a hundred thousand dollar line of credit that you never have to pay back as long as you leave the Bitcoin with you. But if Bitcoin does a ten x, you can then withdraw. Absolutely. And then still have that. And, Correct. And at what point do you margin call somebody? Uh, it depends upon which LTV loan-to-value ratio they choose. On that, and that I, I don't know the exact number, but, there, but it would be a number. It's very unlikely to happen. Even even with the history of Bitcoin over the last five years, I'm yeah. not I, I'm not 100 percent sure this is correct, but I don't think it would have happened. So all you have is you do. You, I mean, you have counterparty risk, but that's the risk you take. 
But it's kind of interesting because it gets to that point whereby if you were somebody who had $10 million of Bitcoin, yeah, and if you're happy with counterparty risk, and your outgoings were like 200000 a year, you never... You might never have to work again. This is my point. You can just take this money. This is the future of banking. And and so as long as we can borrow in the shitcoin. Yeah, look, that's the thing. Look, you need the shitcoin. We do, right? And and so you do too yeah. in the model I'm describing. Yeah. And Michael Saylor is very adept at making this point uh, in a self-serving way, given somebody whose books are reconciled in dollars to yeah. say, I don't want the dollar to go away because as long as I'm alive, <laughs> it is to my advantage that eventually I'll be able to borrow in dollars. He knows that. He knows exactly where this is going. It's not stupid. He doesn't want the dollar to die. He's highly incentivized even though he's holding Bitcoin for the dollar not to die. And even if he ends up with the most Bitcoin of anybody in the world, he still doesn't want the dollar to die, hmm. right? And, and this is why, because if he lives in a dollar, as, as from a spend perspective, everything that's ephemeral is dollars, everything that's permanent is Bitcoin, he wins. Hmm. Because he can borrow to your point against that forever. And as long as the value of the Bitcoin increments at a faster rate than the interest on the dollars, he, he, he's basically borrowing for free. So, Danny, $3, $3 million of Bitcoin, you can go and get yourself a Lambo. <laughs> I'm going to get a Rolex. <laughs> You're going to get a Rolex for you. No, but, I mean, it's super interesting. Um, but while that's, while that's happening, people who choose not to accept Bitcoin, there's this kind of weird uh, new wealth divide being created between the Bitcoin havers and Bitcoin not havers. Sure, but, 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 but this is not uh, an unexpected of course. thing, right? So, so if you go back to Hayek's writing on private money, he said before Bitcoin, before the internet, that if you had private money that was deflationary in nature, fixed value, no print button, this is exactly what would happen. It would be hoarded first by the people who get it, and they would not spend it because they knew that the value via the network effects would drive the value, especially when people realize the scarcity. Well, that's exactly what's happening with, with Bitcoin. The only reason we have these values is what we discussed, discussed before, which is you basically get you know, in a, in, a, in a logarithmic exponential growth, you get some kind of shock to the system, whether it's China bans or, you know, S&P 500 corrections when the Fed hints that they might raise rates. It's all noise in that log, log curve. When in doubt, zoom out, right? I mean, if, if you look at the log chart, it looks like it's up and to the right for a reason, because it is from, from a logarithmic growth perspective. And, and so, so I think that other noise just won't matter long term when, you know, we are at a point where everybody can just borrow in dollars or rupees or rupees or whatever they're holding against Bitcoin. That's fascinating. I've, I've not ever actually borrowed against my Bitcoin yet. It's not to say I wouldn't, but I can think of scenarios. If you had enough Bitcoin, you wanted to buy a house. Sure. We do those loans every day. Yeah. I did it myself. Yeah. But at that, at that and, rate... And, and by the way, that's a huge problem because most banks in this country won't... They'll, they'll, they'll take the yacht, at least on paper, as collateral... They'll take another house, they'll take your Lambo, but they won't recognize the value of Bitcoin. I, well, I know this right now. So I'm buying, I'm buying a house right now. And my mortgage broker, he asked me, because it's, you know, it's a nice house. He's like, uh, can you explain how you're going to pay for it? Because uh, there's the, I have to pay stamp duty and the deposit to get to the house. And I said to him, I want the longest mortgage with the most borrowing possible. That's what I want. Sure. And he said, why? I said, well, I'm, I'm a Bitcoiner. Well, probably, I was going to say, you probably didn't want to, you should probably didn't want to answer the, the question accurately, but, well, but no. we all know the answer. Well, so, so he's just my broker. So I said, <laughs> oh, okay. So he, he, he was, he's his incentives are aligned, but he, he, you can't say that to the bank because they'll close the door immediately. Right? Well, that's what I'm coming to. So yeah. I, he, he said, why? And I said, because I'm a Bitcoiner, um, my Bitcoin will out, outperform 
the the loan I'm taking for the bank. Absolutely. For me, that's cheap credit for holding Bitcoin. Right. He didn't fully get it, but he said, anyway, <laughs> buy the buy, Pete. There's how much money you've got in the bank and there's the deposit. For you to get the mortgage, you have to explain you know, how can you afford this. Right. I've, I've got this added complexity because I've got a podcast. The this is, I've got so many bits I can tell you about this. Um, that I work for myself, so if I'd have if I'd have worked for you, Bill, for a month, and you'd written me a letter saying Pete earns this much, they'll give me the mortgage, right? Because I work for myself, I have to show three years. Exactly. It's, do they have similar? Yeah, absolutely. And, and as and it's a little bit different as the CEO and founder, because even though technically I'm an employee of a USC corp, the banks don't understand have a model for addressing the fact that I am an employee. The last one to get fired. Right. Well, not necessarily, but, but it should be. It, didn't, it doesn't matter yeah, yeah. from the bank's perspective. I, I work for myself. And, and so, yes, Avra's been around long enough where at least that one point is not an issue. But look, here's my prediction as it relates to us in crypto yeah. banking. Okay, two things. One, we'll do loans up to a million dollars for the right amount of collateral, depending upon which state, which country you're in. We do this in 43 U.S. states, 50 countries today. Now, that's not enough if you live on the coasts to buy a house or to pay for most mortgages in the middle of the country it is. But unfortunately, there's a little bit less adoption of Bitcoin in the middle of the country. Those two will converge to the point where we are in the primary mortgage business, Abra. I promise you it's going to happen. I just don't see any way out of it because the Hold banks on. are too slow. Let me, sorry, let me finish telling you my story. Yeah, sorry, because I, I want to finish it and tell you the, yeah. what, what came to my mind. So I so I, I sent them three years of accounts. Yeah. And the podcast has been very successful. But they didn't care. Well, no, no. The podcast has been very successful. Like, I'm not going to share the exact revenues now, but we're in seven figures and it's every year it doubles. Yeah. They said, we need an explanation of, why the growth has been so fast and is it sustainable? <laughs> right. Like it's, right. It's so, so right. The, they don't ask Bernie Madoff to explain why the returns have basically doubled like clockwork, but they ask Peter McCormick. Well, so then my broker, bro- so we did that. And then my broker said, um, they just want a list of assets. So I said, I've got this, I've got this, and I've got this Bitcoin. He said, we're not going to put the Bitcoin in. Right. I said, why? I said, the Bitcoin would pay for the house itself. I'm not selling it, but the Bitcoin would pay for the house. And he said, um, because when they see the Bitcoin, they'll be suspicious Correct. and they think you can't afford the house. And I'm like, this doesn't make any fucking sense. Of course not. But what it did make me think is one of the funniest things is I I don't think I would borrow, I don't think I want to borrow, say, from Arbor the entire house. I don't have enough Bitcoin for that. Mm-hmm. But what I could do is every month, whatever the, say, the, let's pick a number out there, borrow 2000, the payments. you yeah. borrow the payments. Absolutely. Because what would happen is, Yes, I would keep giving you more and more Bitcoin, but you know it maybe in a year, two years. So, so if I wanted to say my mortgage payment was two thousand pound a month, I would have to leave twenty thousand pound of Bitcoin yes. for you. But so I do that every month, every month, every yes. month. But we know at some point I'm going to be able to withdraw back. Yep. So I might never have to make a mortgage yep. payment. Yep. Totally agree. Look, I without giving it all away because my team will kill me. Give it I, all away, Bill. I'll I'll, I'll I'll go on a limb and say. We are going to get in the primary mortgage business because there's no way around the problem you're describing, which I just went through living here in the Bay Area um, in, in, a, in a place where, you know, homes cost, unfortunately, millions of dollars, uh, which is more than what I can lend you today. I can mm-hmm. lend you the down payment for a home in the Bay Area and, and, or in Miami or in New York, and a lot of people are doing that. But in order to address the problem that you and I had, which is not going away anytime soon, we will have to get into the primary mortgage business. And to me, it... it Think about it for a second, right? What is it worth to you on the primary mortgage? Let's say that to your point, you still wanted to sell or, or borrow monthly to make the payments, but you needed to borrow more than what I could lend you today to make the down payments. Let's say to borrow 1.7 million, mm-hmm. right? And 
figuring it out via traditional broker that wouldn't deal with your Bitcoin costs you X and dealing with Abra, a company that would basically fully recognize the Bitcoin, Ethereum, or whatever collateral would cost you maybe X plus like 30 basis points. Now, given what you, mm-hmm. your thesis about where, where Bitcoin is going, you probably pay the 30 basis points and not even blink an eye. Mm-hmm. Well, in the aggregate, in the mortgage industry, those 30 basis points are probably worth a trillion dollars. Jesus. Right. I mean, globally. Yeah. Right. So, and, and keeping in mind that outside the US, most people don't have access to credit anyway, because the systems aren't set up to basically decide who has credit and who doesn't, unless you have basically a guaranteed 24-7 liquid collateral. See, the other thing is that, that I, I would be thinking about this, Bill, is that the, the only problem with the current uh, lending market is the need to over-collateralize. For me, it's always a bit of a pain. Like, I can't buy the house I want cash because I don't have enough collateral on Bitcoin to do, to do it with you. But an interesting mortgage product for me would be, I've paid my deposit. Say the house is, we'll say a million dollars. But, but, but it changes with the mortgage product. You, you have to think differently but because we also have the house. Well, no, this is what I was going to say is yeah. that for this, for this to, so for, say the house has a million dollars, deposits 10%, 100,000, so I put that down, and then I want the mortgage with you, you might be able to take 10% collateral to provide the mortgage, but you also then are in the business of dealing with foreclosures. Correct. But would you deal with foreclosures? Absolutely, because there there's so much extra money on the table. Yeah, because- And people who want to borrow for the down payment won't be able to go the next step to buy the damn house anyway. But That's my point. But 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 that may be that- Maybe if it was like 10% in Bitcoin or 20% in Bitcoin, that gets you around credit checks because you have the house and then you have the Bitcoin, which is much better Look, than a scenario where you only have the house. I know it's that, so obvious. That, that by necessity, the banks will eventually get it because they will have no choice. It'll be too late. Exactly. You'll be buying them. Exactly. So I've said this publicly. I, my prediction is, independent of what Abra's doing, that one of the top 20 exchanges will try to buy a Fortune 500 bank in the next five years. Now, the FDIC may say no way, right, because they have to approve it, but they're going to try. And they may be forced to do the first acquisition outside the U.S., but it's going to happen. And, and, and I would do it for different reasons than what an exchange would do. They would just do it for compliance. I want to do it for the kind of business that you and I are describing because I need the capital base at that point. right? I, I, obviously, I'm hoping we'll get it via billions and billions of dollars in consumer deposits who want to make yield, right? So it becomes a, a reciprocal kind of, uh, you know, symbiotic relationship, which is banking, just crypto-centric now, right? So that's where I think this is headed. And the other part of this is just day-to-day payments. Now, you mentioned borrowing to be able to make that mortgage payment. The downside of that is you've got to sell, which means you've got capital gains on an ongoing basis. So I wouldn't do it that way. I would actually- No, I wouldn't sell. I would just borrow, just borrow from you. You pay my mortgage. Okay. Yeah. So, so that's what I was going to say. So that's, that's something that we're also doing this year. Right. So now you remember, so, so the one thing we had an amazing year last year, but the one thing that I wanted to have happen last year that didn't happen is I wanted to shut off my last bank account. Now, yes, remember, you told me that. I did tell you, you did that. Tell I remember me that. telling yeah. you that. It didn't happen. Now, there's a couple of reasons why. And the single biggest reason why it hasn't happened is I have to pay my bills. And we will be rolling out a solution for that this summer. Without, I'm not giving any more away except... And I will be standing in line as the first customer. And when that happens, my bank account will be shut off. And I, I will see how hard it is if, if we really can accomplish, you know, what I want to do. The only thing, you know, check writing in this country is ridiculous. I actually had to write a check yesterday. I hadn't written one in five years because I had a land surveyor in my house who basically was been in business since 1965. And he didn't know what Zoom or Zelle or you know, <laughs> any of these products is or whatever. Um, 
you know, that's the big variable is, you know, can you basically get away and pay bills without having to write a paper check? And most people under the age of 25 have never written a check. Um, anyway, we're really close. We're really close. And this is what drives me right now. Like, I believe that Bitcoin becomes the personal collateral. It becomes the personal reserve currency. And there's this kind of, I'll use the term DeFi kind of oriented infrastructure around you, software, internet, whatever, that enables the ephemeral banking world of payments via dollar shit coins going forward in a way that preserves the Bitcoin collateral for all time. It just makes so much more sense. And I know the banks recognize Bitcoin exists. They're probably thinking about it. They're probably talking about it. But I don't think many of them, if any of them, really understand what it means as collateral to support something no. like a house bond. No. Even maybe even a car. No. But they don't understand it. And it's gonna be it's gonna take them too long to get there. Essentially, when you get into this market, your entire book will be Bitcoiners. Yes. Yes, absolutely. So it's gonna be this symbiotic relationship between retailers like my like ourselves. Yeah large funds and family offices, um, you know, miners needing to borrow to expand their facilities. We're already seeing this kind of traditional banking symbiotic relationship between business and consumer banking evolve in our world, right? There's a few five or six of us companies that are heavy into the lending space and crypto that are basically also driven by consumer, you know, uh, storage and deposits. Right. And, and so there's a lending side, borrow side, yield side, et cetera, et cetera. They all play off of each other. You can't have one without the other. And banking will, will evolve the same way. So I've got a, a, a huge legal team now that spends all our time thinking about how to make this work. Meaning think of we think of ourselves as the round peg and banking as kind of the oval hole. And we've got to put the round. So they will fit, but we have to do it in a way that works for them. And I think we've figured it out now. And so. You know, that's the pieces of the puzzle that we're kind of laying now for the for the next 15 years of banking. But we need we need the shitcoin dollar. We do. We do. Look, the alternative, of course, is, is that the dollar dies. And, and, you know, I've heard varying degrees of opinion on this. Right. So like, a, you know, some folks like Michael Saylor will say, no, the dollar is not going to die. It's going to be the dollar RMB and maybe euros. And, you know, that will be the ephemeral transaction currency. I'll be able to borrow against it. I actually agree with Michael, even though it's self-serving, I, I actually do agree that we're going to need that to be able to pay. And, I, and whether, and by the way, whether it ultimately becomes like something like, you know, lightning as layer two for payments and it is Bitcoin, it doesn't really matter that much. Um, but it, it does make a big difference in terms of the base collateral and, and being able to borrow against it. Those who figure that out earliest that will be the new wealthy for the next 50 to 100 years in my opinion. Before we carry on with the interview, I do have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by sportsbet.io, the very best place for online gaming because they're badasses and they accept Bitcoin. Now, we are over halfway through the season. Liverpool have just picked up their first trophy. Tottenham are struggling as ever. This season is going as planned. But... How's it going to finish? Do you know how it's going to finish? Will Liverpool win the title? Will they snatch it away from City? Who's going to win the league? Who's going to win the Champions League? Who knows? Well, anyway, if you want to take a bet, sportsbet.io has got you covered. And not just with football. They cover tennis, motorsports, US sports. They even cover esports. And for new customers, there's always a range of promotions available. 
So if you want to find out more, please head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions. That is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. Next up, it's level. Now, as the world migrates from traditional walled garden financial rails to Bitcoin, Level has rebuilt its Bitcoin trading app to become the first full-suite Bitcoin banking app. The Bitcoin revolution isn't just about investing dollars. It's about replacing them. So, while other apps help you to buy Bitcoin, the Level app lets you use your Bitcoin for daily life. You can get paid in Bitcoin, you can spend Bitcoin anywhere, and you can even earn Bitcoin rewards. All of this is alongside a traditional fiat account, so you can manage your Bitcoin alongside your traditional currencies. Now, Level are reserving 500 beta slots for WBD listeners ready to go all in and bank in Bitcoin. If you want to find out more, head over to level.co forward slash WBD, which is lvl.co forward slash WBD for info and early access. Next up, it's Casa. Whether you've just bought your first SaaS or you're a Bitcoin pro, you need to protect your investment. And the only person who should be in charge of your Bitcoin and your financial freedom is you. And securing your Bitcoin does not have to be difficult because Casa makes it so easy. Getting started is super simple. You just download the app, create an account and enjoy a 30-day free trial. And if you need some assistance, it is just a click or phone call away. Casa has best-in-class customer support and free online resources to support you. Now, 12 Canada recently showed us the importance of self-custody and taking control of your money when they froze protesters' finances with no warning. Take your financial freedom into your hands by self-custodying your Bitcoin so it can never be frozen without your consent. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Also today, we have Gemini who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin. And even though they've been with me for a year, I have not sold a single sat with Gemini. I'm only buying. I'm a hodler. But I have been buying Bitcoin with them. Not only have I been buying the dips through Gemini, but I also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. And I'm yet to see a better or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. With a streamlined trading view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing all through one clear, attractive interface. And Gemini are now running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. If you want to find out more, please head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I.com forward slash WBD. But it's... It's not going to happen next year, maybe next five no. years. So no. there is a period of time where there is so much market that you can go out and capture. Absolutely. In, in, in the short term. Um, yeah, it's fascinating trying to get your head around it. Starting, yeah. to th- like, starting to think about, well, firstly, I'm thinking about all the Bitcoin I've sold. Fucking, <laughs> fucking idiot. Um, or the Bitcoin that I've given away. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, I was mining in 2000. I, I mean, this week is the 10-year anniversary for the TED Talk I gave. After that, I probably gave away millions, a thousand Bitcoin. <laughs> Shit, I don't know <laughs> what. Yeah, how much was it? What I don't even that? know is what that that's worth now. Is that five hundred million dollars? I don't even know. Four hundred million. I mean, it was worthless at the time, literally worthless, and it was worth it to me to just expose people to what I was talking about. Is that forty million or four hundred million? 
I haven't done. I don't math. even want to know. Please don't do the math. <laughs> okay. You can text me later. <laughs> I think it's four hundred. I think it's four hundred million. Okay. Well, Max well, Kaiser. Please. Max Kaiser gave Alex Jones ten thousand Bitcoin on a laptop. <sighs> yeah. Yeah, right. but like you say, nobody was to know. I, I, I don't. I mean, I probably haven't thought about it more than twice until this conversation. It just doesn't matter. I mean, can you go and ask for it back? <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. Funny. Bill, the, um, I've had so many conversations this last week starting to think about the things that Bitcoin does beyond just being you know, peer-to-peer decentralized money. <laughs> I've just had a conversation, we had a Alex Gladstein in here this morning, and he really went through the thesis of how Bitcoin defunds wars. It doesn't get rid of it, but it defunds wars because we've moved to this world where rather than having war bonds, where the, you know, the, the population decides whether they want to pay the tax for the right. war, is it a just war? The Fed just prints money for the war. So I had a conversation. Um, who is that talking to? We've talked about mining and how mining is now changing the yep. uh, energy grid. There's so many things that are coming out of this that it's kind of kind of mind-blowing. Yeah, so the, the big question related to funding war really becomes what happens with this debt cycle? I think he's right for the next debt cycle. But we're right at the cusp of this debt cycle ending, and, and this is what Ray Dalio's new book talks about. And what he explains in the book is this never ends well, never. And you can see it now with, with all this stuff about you know fighting over shit island that nobody's ever heard of in the South China Sea and mm-hmm. Russia amassing troops. I don't know if, if, if this really means this is it, but it doesn't sound good to me. And there's really no basis in reality for it other than bond markets, which have traditionally been the reason that these wars have happened. So the question is, can we get out of it now in this cycle with the model he's describing, or is it too late this cycle? And it's just basically the basis for the, you know, the gold standard utopia for the future for those of us who don't die. Now, I, that sounds horrible mm-hmm. when, when I say it that way, but it's the, I think it's the truth, right? I don't, that's what I don't know. I believe Dalio. I think the, the math he describes is sound. It has happened, you know, like clockwork in 80-year cycles for hundreds of years. It has nothing to do with technology. It's driven by human frailty which is why you can get off a gold standard. It shouldn't be possible to get off a gold standard. That's why it's called a gold standard. But we've done it time and again, right? It's invariably led to war because the bond markets go to shit. And so if he's right soon, it's great. If he's right in a little while, it could be a big problem. Does that make sense? No, I'm going to have to have you walk you through it. If, if we are in a late stage debt cycle, mm-hmm. which means historically... War is coming. Yeah. Because that's, you know, late stage of that cycle, you know, Lynn's talked about it, bond markets go to shit. Mm -hmm. You know, Dahlia talks about it all the time and invariably has led to war for whatever reason. Somebody basically is left holding the bag and they don't want to be left holding the bag and it leads to war, right? Germany after, you know, Versailles, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. So I believe Alex's point about not being able to fund war via Bitcoin standard, the way I believe he was describing it to you in your talk this morning, that wasn't there, but I, I get this point. I've seen him make, it, make the point before. The question is, there's a time vector on top, meaning do we have enough time to get out of this cycle now using a Bitcoin standard? Oh, or, oh I see what you're saying. Or is it too late in this debt cycle? Because this debt cycle is not gonna be here in 25 years. Can, can Bitcoin save us lessen the impact? soon enough? Yeah. Well, I don't think it's, I think it's a binary thing. Okay. Either you go to war or you don't. And in all the previous debt cycles, we've gone to war. But, but, but what has to happen with Bitcoin to stop? I don't know. Okay. Nobody knows. Fine. That's why Dahlia doesn't address it. Dahlia doesn't say in his book 
how do we avoid war in this debt cycle? He just tells you as, a, as an asset manager what has happened and what he does to address mm. the fact that we're in late stage debt cycle, you know, bond, bond yields are going to, to shit and, or, or at least certain prices are about to plummet again. And, and here's what that implies from a fund management perspective. He has no thesis about how to stop the war if it's gonna happen. He just tells us what's happened. Alex tells us this is what would happen if you had the Bitcoin standard. What I'm saying is we don't know what yeah, that transition yeah. is gonna look like that would prevent the war before we go on the Bitcoin standard. And, to, and, and keeping in mind that all those bankers we just talked about would laugh at this conversation because they would say, what the fuck are you talking about? Bitcoin standard, Bitcoin is a joke. Still, even at $2 trillion, from a traditional banker's perspective, it's this, it's like buying Facebook stock in 15 years ago, you know, it's going up in price, so I'm gonna make some money. What are you guys talking about with Bitcoin banking? Yeah, well, right? I, know, I know this already, because you know I bought this football club. Yeah. So if I sit down with a Bitcoiner and I explain my thesis, they're like, yeah, it's fucking brilliant, I get it. Right. I sit down to talk to a football person, they're like, this is a scam. Yeah, you're just from Rich Cook who made some money and decided to invest in a football club. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I actually walked them through it. Yeah. This 10th tier football team, <laughs> nobody goes to watch them. And I'm saying I can get them in the Premier League. And I spoke to this journalist. He said, how are you going to do it? And I said, I'll walk you through it. I said, I'm going to get a leveraged audience. So we have a revenue model now. So that's, we're good now. We've made a lot of money now, which is great. Mm -hmm. But the way we get in the Premier League is I want to borrow 50 million now. I'm going to hold it in Bitcoin. And I'm not going to touch that for eight years. And in eight years time, when we're in the football league, I will start dipping into that so we can go towards the Premier League. Yeah. He said, what do you mean you're going to hold 50 million in Bitcoin? I said, well, because probably at some point in the next eight to 10 years, Bitcoin is going to be worth certainly hundreds of thousands, maybe yeah. 500,000 to a million. But if it is, I'll be holding a, a treasury of around half a billion. I'll be the most well-capitalized club in the world. He's like, the fuck are you on about? No, if you're on the inside, every one of these models, whether it's a mortgage, or whether it's war, whether it's a football club, if you're a Bitcoiner, you understand it. Everyone on the outside doesn't. And that leap... It's only, only recently because I spent the last four years doing this and spending time with Bitcoin. And so I forgot there are a bunch of people who don't get this. Now I've come back out and spending time with people yeah. that don't. There's a massive gulf of an understanding. And, and our knowledge is getting deeper. Yeah. We're talking about mortgage products. Right. I, we still haven't got them to the door of even thinking about it. That's right. That's right. I mean, I heard Balaji in your show. I forget the journalist's name that he was with. Greenwald. Uh, Greenwald. Thank you. Awesome interview. And by the way, just letting them go was, was brilliant. <laughs> And, and he talked about the pendulum swinging towards anarchy. I think a lot about if that pendulum does swing, that that could save us because it means less government, but somebody is gonna be left holding the bag on all of this worthless debt. That has never ended well. So that's the part that I don't have an answer for that keeps me up sometimes when I really think about where it's all going. Depends where the transfer of wealth is from and to, and who it affects. Well, right now it's China, which holds an insane amount of our debt. They don't want any more. They know it's worthless. They're talking about basically settling what used to be a petrodollar now and a euro dollar yeah, with, in, a euro. In, a, in a euro with, with Russia. Mm -hmm. um, again, it, it, it's exactly what's happened before. Um, I, I think he's right in terms of the pendulum swinging towards anarchy and over swinging in the short term. Like you, I think a right-sized government, very right-sized versus what we have now makes sense. But um, we're going to have to overshoot the mark in order to get there, most likely. By the way, Greenwald and Balaji wasn't about me just letting them talk. It was about me going, 
I don't know what I can add here. <laughs> oh, come on. I, I, two great buyers. I listened to it twice. And wow, thank just, you. Yeah, well, it was, it was really good. And I actually, I'd like to get Greenwood on his own. I think you should have the follow-up conversation you guys mentioned at the end for sure. No, we, we're definitely going to do that because Balaji's got some kind of great ideas there. Yeah. But I, what I want is a separate one with Greenwood where we will talk about his observations externally of the... Uh, Bitcoin community because I thought he had quite he had a, that quite astute observation that maybe Bitcoiners aren't always good at selling Bitcoin to the wider community because you you have to make that leap into libertarianism which is a long way from where some people are and I, I think he makes a good point but. yeah wow interesting talk <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Danny these conversations are getting deeper and deeper yeah um, in terms of there's this fundamental shift in banking as well um, in that the Chase, is it Chase Manhattan? Is it called Chase Manhattan? Chase, just Chase. Was it called Chase Manhattan? It was. Yeah, yeah. And Chase. Th these banks have merged so many times. Wells Fargo. You get J.P. Morgan Chase. Yeah. I, I don't remember which part is name and which part is history, which, you know, who knows. Wells Fargo, uh, the, or Lloyds, Barclays in the UK, they've, mm. there's another thing going on. They've made life difficult to do business with them. Of course. Onerous KYC. Today, today I've had two different transfers I, I couldn't make. One a business, one that turns out I had a limit on my account I didn't know I could do. Uh, and then on a personal account, I can't remember what was the reason I didn't, I couldn't, it wouldn't allow me to do that. I lost my, everyone knows, I lost my Lloyds Bank because I wouldn't tell them what I'm spending my money on. And here we are in the background. Arbor is just building this new, yeah. you know, and, and new competitors are just building these new, completely new banks and models. Yeah that these people don't understand. Um, how has the face of, let's call it financial services as well as banking, how, how has the face of that changed in the time you've been doing Arbor and what has surprised you about it all? Yeah, when I started Abra, I thought that we would be able to use Bitcoin quickly to be able to move money around mm -hmm. and um, eliminate middlemen on remittances. I had developed a stablecoin like model using almost like like DAI, but based on Bitcoin uh, out of I the remember, gate for yeah. Abra. Yeah. And it worked. Technically, it worked. Financially, it worked. And I remember sitting in a meeting with one of our early investors, and he said to me, he said, this is brilliant. He said, you know, I've been reading about how Bitcoin works. The one thing I don't understand is there's this mining fee you pay, and it's a couple of pennies right now because this is, you know, 2014. And, and he said, what happens when that turns into like $10? And I said, well, that can't happen because, you know, Satoshi laid out the way here's how you basically increase the block size and you know the network grows and he laid out some in some posts in Metcalf's law and you know how it all works and how Bitcoin will be able to scale over time and boy was I wrong <laughs> right so so I had this vision that payments would come first because we could solve immediate global problems like you know I was at the time I was running a foundation in Haiti I had spent a lot of time in the Philippines rural Mexico you know Guatemala etc cetera, etc cetera. and it just wouldn't work technically. There was just no way. It was too expensive. Um, the first time, you know, Bitcoin shot up to 15,000, we were subsidizing mining fees. There was one month where we paid over a million dollars. Holy shit. In mining, exactly. Oh. So, so we shut that off real quick, at least in terms of us subsidizing those, but it didn't make sense to our users because they saw dollars. Remember these were stable coins based yep. on Bitcoin. And, and so anyway, so we had no choice but to back out of that business model and so we decided that wealth management would be the right way to start the banking model and then move into payments vis-a-vis -vis all the, the, the better model. I also came into Bitcoin with that payments hat on, right? So we talked about how much Bitcoin I may have given away. 
I had no interest in what it was worth because even though I was an Austrian at heart who had read Hayek and, you know, von Mises and all these books years ago, I didn't associate Bitcoin with that yet because I was associating it with peer-to-peer -peer electronic money to be able to move money around quickly. That was my interest in Bitcoin out of the gate. I realized that if I was going to do this, I had to layer the timing of the market and where Bitcoin was going onto my thesis, regardless of what I wanted to have happen. Meaning I can't force a timing for a product. So because Bitcoin was going to be hoarded, I started to embrace it for what it was, which is basically an asset which was going to be hoarded, if at all, right? Because it was still early. Yeah. And, and, and started to embrace it from that perspective and then realized, okay, I can build a wealth management system around this. I can build a lending business around this. That will segue into payments. That will work its way down the socioeconomic pyramid so that I can enable person-to-person -person money transfer in war zones, remittance zones, and do all those great things that were what was originally exciting for me, but get there in a different path than what I thought was going to happen. All right, I still think that, you know, lightning is going to work, but you can't turn on 100 million people on Lightning right now. It's not possible. Even with mm -hmm. Cash yeah, app saying they're going to turn on Lightning, unless they're acting as the node for every single user right now, won't work. Not yet. It'll work eventually. But like I said, not yet. So we realized that we had to get there via a different path. And that's the path we're taking. And as you start to take market share from traditional banks, um, and I know Caitlin Long uh, with Avanti is building what she says as a fully reserved bank, and there are that it isn't a universal view that you know, fractional reserve banking is bad. Some people agree it is good. It's um, you know credit expansion is good. It you know it, you know it supports the growth in the economy. You know, for example, under a Bitcoin standard, that's not really going to be possible. Well, um, back to the it? question about um, what is the dollar's role? So we need the dollar again. Well, no, we don't need the dollar. I'm, I'm openly saying it depends on what the dollar's role is. So for example, if the dollar acts as the basis for ephemeral money movement, ephemeral, ephemeral money movement is you have a start and an end to a transaction, and then the dollar's role is, is gone because you've gone back to your, your, your Bitcoin reserves for that which is held long-term, fractional reserve banking doesn't really make a lot of sense, mm -hmm. okay? If we still believe that for, you know, kind of to grow an economy, you do need uh, a Keynesian perspective on growing that dollar by 2% a year. That is, that is completely wrong, by the way. That is not what needs to happen, but there may be even- it's what even they come, need to happen. Right, but even coming out of this debt cycle, the question remains, what will people believe? Because they believed coming out of the last debt cycle that we needed a gold standard, but the way they implemented it was completely wrong. It allowed us to base, it allowed human frailty to still fuck it up. Right? And that's what Dalio has correctly pointed to that transcends technology. Right? This debt cycle and, and, and what inevitably is going to happen is going to happen independent of the fact that we're so much more technically advanced than the people who screwed it up 250 years ago. It's the same human frailty. So we need a model with the next debt cycle that eliminates the possibility of human frailty screwing it up. If we believe that that's important. We may decide as a society, it's okay to have debt cycles. Now, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me on the surface, mm -hmm. but I don't know everything. So, so it may be that it makes more sense to actually have debt cycles than end. Like, remember the matrix, you, you keep rebuilding it over and over again? Well, maybe that's what a debt cycle is. It's like the matrix that you keep rebuilding over and over again. Nobody knows, right? So, so my preference is, is that fractional reserve banking, to your question, goes away. Uh -huh. We have a model where you can borrow ephemerally, right? Uh, you know, in dollars, pay what you have to pay. 
and, and you live that way. And the value of a deflationary asset on a purchasing power basis continues to increase over time because there's a fixed float, right? Which is what should happen when you have a true gold standard. If that happens, the model I'm describing should allow for societal growth, even if the population continues to grow, even though some people think that won't happen. And humans can't fuck it up because the Bitcoin standard Correct. is decentralized. Correct. It's amazing Ray Dalio doesn't get this, or maybe he hasn't sat down with the I right person. I don't think he's incentivized to care right now because his focus is not how do we get out of this mess. It's what's happening. It's what's happening and how do I invest appropriately. And so, because his job is CIO of a traditional asset management firm rooted in today's system, right? Hmm. And, and so I think about the, um, the boundary layer between the old and the new because I'm incentivized to think about it. It affects my business. Uh, it also affects how I sell my business, right? And what is my conviction for? And and so I don't think his conviction overlays overlaps totally with mine yet. <sighs> Please don't bring war. Yeah, that's the part I don't want. Um, okay, uh, what are the other parts of the banking sector that you see that you guys were taking over, or the other parts of the financial sector that you'll be taking over? We talked about mortgages. We know you already do interest accounts. You do loans. How does this affect other parts of the financial sector? Yeah, I mean, look, payments is, is a big part of it. Uh, the interplay. So, so we have to think a little bit differently outside of the US and the UK because we have credit infrastructure. We can actually say, okay, I'll extend you without collateral a few thousand dollars or pounds worth of credit, that's not happening in India and China and Bangladesh and Turkey and the Philippines, all these places where we're seeing huge growth in Abra, where, where people are tired of holding the shitcoins that are worse than even than the dollar shitcoin, right? And so they'd rather hold Bitcoin and dollars in Abra, right? So they're actually holding dollars in Abra because they know that even though the dollar may be going to shit, it's going to shit less fast than that which they're, you know, the government is telling the whole. Well, that's another thing and Gladstein talks about. He talks about how important Tether is around the world in places absolutely. like Turkey. I mean, yeah. yeah, Bitcoin's great. You can tell people in Turkey to hedge with Bitcoin, but if Bitcoin drops 50%, that, you know, in a short period of time, that doesn't really help them. That's Tether right. gives them the stability that they that's right. need. Or USDC or, yeah, yeah. you know, the other one. But for sure, uh, DAI is probably the one that I'm most interested in long-term because it actually represents a way to hold the dollar without actually having the dollars in reserve that represents a better hedge to the existing system. So, um, but regardless of how you're doing it, he's absolutely right. And so you think about credit in those countries, it's going to evolve differently because they don't have, they're going to leapfrog us. That's what I'm trying to say is mm -hmm. they're going to leapfrog us in a way where they're going to use Bitcoin as collateral to do personal loans for real-time payment because they don't have another way to do it. Their entire economy is debit-based. Right? Everything is debit card based where it's electronic because there's no way to extend short-term ephemeral credit, which we take for granted with purchase protection and all these things that they've invented to fight over our business for. That's the only reason this stuff exists. The only reason we have purchase protection and all this other stuff is because Visa issuers, MasterCard issuers, Amex, they're trying to fight over our short-term payment business because the merchants willing to pay 2 to 3% for the right to make it easy for us to pay in the first place. It's, it's, a, it's a wacky incentive system that has evolved that doesn't exist outside of these five or six countries where everything is based upon a lack of trust, meaning you can pay with what you have in the moment. That's it. That's a debit model versus a credit model. Bitcoin completely changes that. 180 degree change. For the first time, people in developing markets are going to have instant real-time 
credit. And I'm willing to do the same exact 10% instant on zero fee credit line for them that I am here. So think about it for a second. That means that you're going to have a credit card, not a debit card, a credit card, where if you're willing to park $1,000 or $500, you can spend up to $50 if it's 500 that month completely for free, zero interest, right? And I want everyone in the world to have that instant on Android, most likely Android, uh, Google Pay link, you know, via whatever issuer we choose, right? And that's going to happen, I promise you. Is there any risk that we can't get Bitcoin evenly spread enough or into enough people's hands that it creates a kind of wonky well, global economy? So, so I think the answer, yes, I have to say yes. Yeah. Is, there, is, there, is there a non-zero chance? Yes. But back to the playbook. Remember I said, why did I basically miss, even though I was an Austrian at heart, why did I miss this? Well, I, I read the white paper and the title said peer-to-peer -peer electronic money. And as somebody who was in the remittance business, I said, whoa, wait a minute. This is remittances without the middleman. I'm all about that. I didn't focus on the playbook, which is store value, wealth first. We have a playbook for this. The playbook basically says, and, and again, go back to the 76 paper or book from, from Hayek, we basically, it's, it's hoarded. It reaches a certain value. It makes no sense at that point to continue to hold it once it reaches a certain value, whatever that mentally becomes based upon the network effects that I've talked about. At that point, people will start to loosen up the purse strings. So my point is we actually have a playbook that, that has been playing out to the letter. I wish I had made that correlation much sooner. I might not have given away the thousand Bitcoin that I gave away, <laughs> but, but it doesn't matter. I'll be fine. Thank you for your concern. And, and I wish I was your friend though. Yes, thanks. He would have beat me with a stick. Um, but we'll, you know, look, the, the playbook, like I said, is clear. And so, I, so to your question, I do think it's going to be widely distributed over time with a side effect of the people who got in early will have a tremendous amount of wealth, but enough by default has to be distributed, otherwise it's worthless. And that's what the private money playbook that was written 40 years ago says. But, but does that work at both the micro and macro level? I can see how here in the US that would work and gradually you get wider distribution. But I'm thinking... Do some countries miss out? Some choose not to. Like, for example, uh, let's Bolivia. Bitcoin's illegal in Bolivia. And we know some people can have it anyway because yeah. of that. But if they continue to fight and ignore it and the rest of South and Central America adopt it, by the time they choose to, could they be in a like m not only a massively disadvantaged position, but actually an almost uh, unsurvivable position? Totalitarian systems are going to be, um, are going to have a problem. Uh, the, great, the Great Firewall in China represents a significant problem. Uh, countries that basically are, you know, have corrupt banking systems where you can't actually enable collateralized lending against a hard asset are going to be a problem. Um, but the model I'm describing has been around for a very long time. It just doesn't happen with Bitcoin. It happens with stocks and other, other hard assets, right? Prime brokers, Goldman Sachs and others will lend the wealthy cash against their stocks all the time. Meaning, and, and I, I know very wealthy people who live off of their Apple shares, literally off their Apple shares, never sold a share. They just borrow against it every month. And it's like a, like a revolving credit card. But instead of Bitcoin, it's Apple shares. Now, that's not a hard asset in the sense of, you know, it, it's, it's value, you know, I mean, Apple could go to shit, right? They, they're, they're, you know, the management team dies in a plane crash and all of a sudden, you know, Apple shares are worthless. So it's a little bit of a different, you know, model in terms of what is that kind of collateral become but there is kind of a, a evidence that this idea can work at, for, the, for the wealthy 
my point is, is that Hayek showed us that there's a playbook for getting there for everyone else over time. Right. But to your question, the countries that will come last block internet access, uh, have corrupt banking systems, have totalitarian governments. Um, now, unfortunately, they probably need this the most, but it is what it is. Now, eventually, I think they're going to have no choice to capitulate. That may take 15 years, 20 years. But if you think about it in terms of internet years, right, I was at working in .com 1.0 in the mid-90s, it feels to me like it was yesterday. It's not that long. Actually, you can game it out. Um, a country like um, Bolivia or whoever, um, China themselves, blocks access to Bitcoin like the Great Firewall. The rest of the world is getting wealthier through Bitcoin. The rest of the world wants to trade in Bitcoin. They don't have any. Their country becomes poorer as the rest of the world gets richer. Uh, imports become more expensive. Gosh, so it gets to the point where the when they finally have to give in, maybe have to use natural resources to start to acquire Bitcoin. But also at that point, they're adopting freedom money in a country which isn't free. So yep. it just kind of breaks down the walls of totalitarianism. Yeah, interesting. The thing, the thing that was most interesting about El Salvador was they didn't have to give up a shitcoin in order to, their own shitcoin, in order yeah. to adopt um, Bitcoin as a parallel currency, meaning they had already given up, yeah. I forget what it's called, the El Salvador dollar years ago, right? So that's why I'm a little skeptical that you're going to start seeing small countries fall like dominoes unless they are based upon some other currency, mm -hmm. right? That made it very easy for the government there to accept the fact that, yeah, we are victim to the whims of the Federal Reserve. Now, the reality is every government, every person on earth right now is a victim to the whims of the Federal Reserve Bank, which is insane, mm -hmm. okay? It's just more acute if you've adopted a dollar standard, which El Salvador did. So Ecuador would be a natural next Whoever country. is on a dollar standard makes sense, at least to understand, not that they would do it, but at least they can understand the implication of going back to something that looked more like the gold standard the dollar used to be on, when it made more sense, would have made more sense for us then to adopt the dollar than it does now. It's so wild, Bill, because I remember getting seriously into Bitcoin four or five years ago, and I would read Nakamoto Institute articles, I'd hear about hyper-Bitcoinization, I'd hear about Bitcoin Standard, and I was like, yeah, it's great in theory, but come on, man, this is just like magic internet money, and it's, it's, we've seen it all play out now, it's happening. Yeah. Well, the, the great thing about it is, is that you don't have to think Bitcoin-centric. I mean, you can read the Fiat Standard book, um, which I just started, um, which so far is a good read. You can read Hayek's work, um, especially Hayek, because there was no internet when he came up with this idea of why private money would work. And, and so far, he's been 100% correct. So, so it wasn't very self-serving because the technologies that you really would need to make it work, he didn't even understand at the time because they didn't exist. So, so I think um, you don't really have to dig into what hyper-Bitcoinization means, at least using the word Bitcoin, to actually see how this could play out, right? You could read Dalio's new book. You could read Hayek's work. Yeah, then you could read the fiat standard. And if you bring that all together, you're like, hmm. That's a lot of reading. <laughs> uh, it's a lot of reading, but it's, we, also, we only have one life. We only yeah, have yeah. one planet. We only have one society. So if you're going to educate yourself on something, maybe it's understanding why we keep killing each other every 80, 100 years, and how we can get out of it, right? Let's hope we can get out of this one. Yeah, we'll see. All right, man. Well, listen, this was not at all what we planned. Not at all, but way better. Way better. Fascinating. <laughs> uh, I'm sure you want to plug Arbor. Sure. Tell people where to go. 
Aber.com. Uh, you know, we're growing like a weed. Uh, thanks for your support here. Your audience has been amazing. Um, we are operating now in 100 countries. We're managing about, I think, one and a half billion now. We basically have the crypto brokerage. We allow you to borrow against crypto holdings. Um, we pay yield on Bitcoin. Um, look for some pretty awesome payment products this year that leverage your crypto holdings. Mm-hmm. It's one, my number one focus right now. And um, yeah. I want to see this mortgage product. Yeah, me too. Me too. And we have funds now that uh, allow institutions to come in uh, using the same retail products that we've had all along. Well, it's always good to catch up with you, Bill. I always get so much out of it. I always learn so much for you. Um, good luck with this. It sounds fascinating. Thanks, I mean, the, the company's a very different one from the one when I met you first time three years ago. Well, it's a very different podcast from the yeah. one I met three years ago. Yeah. Um, but it's fascinating to see, man. Just keep crushing it. And uh, next time I'm here in San Francisco, we'll catch up again. Absolutely. Brother. Probably Miami. Or oh, Miami, yeah. yeah. God, we got that Miami as well. Miami in April. Miami in April. Okay, well, listen, crush it, man. Good to see you. Thanks, Take bro. care. Bye. All right, thanks for listening to What Bitcoin Did. If you want to get in touch, the best thing you can do is head over to my Telegram channel or you can hit me up on my email, which is hello at whatbitcoindid.com.